Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast, Episode 62, Nicholas II and a String of Major Errors. Last episode, Nicholas II ascended to the throne of Russia, succeeding his ultra-reactionary father, Alexander III. Tragedy struck the new Tsar early on, with the stampede deaths of nearly 1,400 people on the Kodinka field. At this point, we need to bring in a discussion of four men who I feel were the real catalysts of the bringing about of the end of the Romanov dynasty. These men were to stir up the ire of the people, the nobility, the right, as well as the left, within and outside of Russia. Many of you are maybe expecting me to begin my inclusion of people like Lenin, Trotsky, Stalin, or maybe those who know a little bit more about Russian history, Peter Kropotkin. But you'd all be wrong. The four, in my humble opinion, were Romanovs themselves. They were Nicholas II's uncles, the brothers of Alexander III, Sergei, Peter, Constantine, and Nicholas. These power-hungry and greedy grandsons of Nicholas I dominated their weak-willed nephew, whom they held in little regard. Oh, publicly they bowed to their master the Tsar, but privately they were nothing short of old bullies. Because Nicholas II was such a pious, spiritual, trusting, and yes, spineless man, the four brothers could intimidate their nephew for personal gains. The Tsar was actually scared of them, which is astonishing, as he could have emasculated them with a mere hand gesture and a proclamation if he had the guts to do so. A telling insight into the way that these four men made the uh, Tsar cower in fear was a conversation between Nicholas and his brother-in-law and confidant, Grand Duke Alexander Mihailovich, when they discussed the decrepit condition of the Russian Navy. Many were well aware that the military needed some serious overhauling and updating, especially in the light of Japanese aggression in the East. Both men were in agreement that reorganizing the Navy was necessary and that Grand Duke Sergei would likely have to be stripped of his role as the head of that arm of the military. Nicholas confirmed his agreement numerous times, but couldn't move forward with the decision because, quote, Uncle Sergei would be acting up terribly. Everybody in the palace will certainly hear his voice. This was another stupid decision that would cost the lives of thousands of brave Russians, made Russia look like the paper tiger it had become, and added high combustion fuel to the fire of rebellion after the Russo-Japanese War, which we'll cover next episode. The reputation of the Tsar and that of Empress Alexandra took more and more hits after the Kodinka field debacle because of their personalities. We've already talked about Nicholas and how his indecision and fear of his uncles ruled his behavior. Now we need to turn to his wife, who was his closest confidant. Those nearest to the couple saw how painfully shy Alexandra was. From afar, though, she came off as aloof and standoffish. To the people, she was just another haughty German princess. She, like her husband the Tsar, had only a few trusted friends, like her maid of honor, Anna Vairupova and Lily Dem. She was also not a healthy person, which caused many to think that she suffered from hysteria.
Both the common people and the aristocracy were critical of her. But of course, it was kept quiet within high society, but not so with the growing intelligentsia. Newspapers cropped up with anti-Romanov sentiment being quite strong. People like Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, Lenin, began to speak out against the Tsar and the Empress. Trotsky, as Steinberg and Ryazanovsky write in their book, A History of Russia, quote, insisted that the archaic, rotten Russian system, which is about to collapse, could not logically produce a leader much different from that ineffective relic of a past. Remember in my podcast about Paul I and that his change in the laws of primogenitor, the way the crown would be passed down on the death of the Tsar, was the beginning of the end of the dynasty? Well, now you know why. At this time in the mid-1890s, Nicholas makes another mistake to further alienate a wide swath of people when, instead of relaxing his father's restrictive policies, which was expected, he again listened to Pobedonetsov when he further restricted the powers of the Zemstvos, the groups of assemblies of the people, in putting out reform ideas to be passed up to the Tsar through his bureaucracy. In January of 1895, he was quoted as saying in an address to the representatives of the Zemstvos, quote, It is known to me that voices have been heard of late, in some Zemstvo assemblies, by persons carried away by senseless dreams of participation of representatives of the Zemstvos in the affairs of internal administration. Let all know that, in devoting all my strength to the people's well-being, I will preserve the principles of autocracy as firmly and unswervingly as did my late, unforgettable father. The bureaucrats were firmly in control, led by men like Dmitry Sipiagin and Vyacheslav Plev. They continued to take away any power from the people in the Tsemsvo. This was to create a large base of support for the underground anti-Romanov movements, like the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks. Another policy carried out with zeal by Nicholas's henchmen was the intense Russification policy. All non-Orthodox religions had more restrictions placed upon them, and some, like the Armenian Church, had their estates and funds confiscated. But no one was more abused than the Jews. Numerous pogroms were started with the worst one being in 1903 in Kishinev, in Bessarabia. The Kishinev pogrom, also known as the Kishinev massacre, occurred on April 6th and 7th of 1903. It started after a young Christian Ukrainian boy named Mikhail Rybachenko was found murdered. Two local newspapers, Mezrabets and Sviet, claimed that Jews killed the boy, with one of the papers stating that the boy's blood was used in the preparation of Jewish matzah. Riots broke out, stoked by the propaganda from the papers, and out of that, 47 Jews were murdered and over 600 wounded, many seriously, along with over 700 Jewish homes and businesses destroyed. What struck the international community was the lack of any response by the authorities, which gave the impression, and rightfully so, that the Russian government approved of the pogrom. It turned out that the boy was actually murdered by a family member, 
and only two people were prosecuted for the riots and imprisoned. Out of this and a number of other pogroms, many Jews decided that they needed to leave Russia, with many headed to Palestine, the future Israel, and others to the United States. President Theodore Roosevelt went so far as to demand that Nicholas II stop the persecution of the Jews in writing. His plea went unanswered and ignored. Next to join the growing list of newly forged enemies of the Tsar were the loyal Finns. Finland was an autonomous Grand Duchy that was won by Russia in 1809 after their war with Sweden. They did better under Russian rule than under Swedish, so the people were pretty happy until the end of the 19th century, when Alexander III started the Russification process, with Nicholas providing the nail in the coffin with the appointments of General Nicholas Bobrikov and the previously mentioned Plev to run Finland. By 1899, the previously happy Finns turned to bitter enemies. In 1904, Bobrikov was assassinated. In 1905, they joined in on the general revolt that was to re engulf Russia. But not everything was going to hell in a handbasket in Russia, in part due to the brilliant Sergei Witte, the head of the Ministry of Finance. He was by far the most intelligent and insightful person in the Russian government, one deserving of an entire podcast one day. To summarize what he did in his position, he was to stabilize the Russian economy by putting it on the gold standard after building huge gold reserves. He doubled the size of the railroad and did whatever possible to expand Russia's heavy industry. Foreign affairs were now to take center stage and box Nicholas II into a corner that was to prove utterly disastrous. From June of 1881 through 1887, the alliance of the three emperors was put together between Germany, Russia, and Austria-Hungary, that basically said that if any one of them went to war against anyone but Turkey, the other two would remain neutral. But by 1887, Austria-Hungary and Russia became enemies because of disputes over Bulgaria and all of the Balkans, especially after the debacle in Bulgaria overseen by Alexander III. In 1887, a secret peace treaty known as the Reinsurance Treaty was signed between Otto von Bismarck of Germany and Russia. But due to Bismarck's ouster in 1890, it was not renewed. Then, tensions between Great Britain and Russia heightened due to the Russian expansionism in Central Asia, which the British believed threatened their holdings in India. This pushed the Russians into an alliance with France. France was the only one who could help the now isolated Russians economically and militarily. By 1894, an agreement was reached that called for military support between France or Russia if either was attacked by Germany, Austria-Hungary, or Italy. As you can see, the battle lines for World War I were drawn in 1894. In 1899, Nicholas II, much to his credit, called together the first Hague Peace Conference, attended by 27 nations. Little was accomplished except the formation of the International Court of Justice at The Hague. A second Hague Peace Conference convened in 1907, but it too failed to reach an agreement to stabilize the increasingly tense situation in Europe. Nicholas was desperate to keep the peace in the West, 
but not so in Asia. Next episode, we will cover the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905 and the beginnings of the Revolution of 1905. And now for reading from Russian history. This time it's an epic poem that will be read over the next three episodes, and it's called The Rosiad by M.M. Karaskov. I sing of Russia freed from the barbarians, the rule of Tatars overthrown and their pride humbled. Movement of ancient arms, travail and bloody battles. Russia triumphant and Kazan reduced to ruins. The years of peace from these times had their true beginning, which like a bright dawn came to shine over all Russia. O thou, that soar higher than all the stars of heaven, spirit of poetry, come from those heavenly places, and pour your rays, O art, and your illumination upon this frail and dark creation I now offer. By insolent trans-vulgar hordes despotic power, the eastern part of ancient Russia still was burdened, and on our prisoners the fetters rattled loudly. Revolts were brewing, and new crimes began arising. Through villages and towns pale fear itself extended. Woe followed woe, and evil made pursuit of evil. The altars in the churches had no incense smoking. Church singing came to cease, and winds alone there howled. Beneath thorns in the field the plow lay idly quiet, and to the dark woods from their flocks went shepherds running. When daylight cast its bright glance and the north illuminated, it found a prostate Russia suffering and groaning. Hazan, which drew the breath of life in its embrace, ignoble tribute from her weary hands was taking. The city thrown up by the enemies of Russia, like some proud mountain to the north, was elevated. And when it raised its head, it stood beside two rivers, for where it looked upon the shores of the raging Volga. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please go to iTunes, and if you can, give me a favorable rating, if you like what you hear, as it helps me move up the podcast rankings. Uh, sometime in the next week here, in the first week of September, uh, it's likely we'll hit over 100,000 subscribers, so I want to really thank you. Never imagined that we have this many people interested in Russian history. And also, don't forget to join us on Facebook at the Russian Rulers History Podcast Group, where you can ask a question, leave a comment, or make a suggestion. I'll be taking another week off, unfortunately, as I'll be traveling, teaching a five-day class in my field of expertise, and it's not Russian history. But I'll be back in two weeks with the next episode. And now, as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.